In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated. Let me tell you that there are few things that strike fear into the heart of a preacher more than reading texts like the ones we've heard this morning and hearing the implicit warning within. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let the one who has my word speak my word faithfully. That's Jeremiah today. Now, these words were not obviously expressly written for me, but I found that as I was preparing today's sermon, they kept coming back to me, and it kept cutting me right to the core. Let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. It's a, it's a command, but it's also a warning. In Jeremiah's time, God's people had turned away from him. They had been taken in by other would-be gods and goddesses, powers and principalities of their day, and they all claimed to offer wisdom, power, prestige, protection for the low cost of an individual's worship. It was all a lie, of course, as they offered nothing and could offer nothing, especially to the people who already belonged to the one true God. It's tragic, and it's a scandal. But God's people turned away from him, and they gave their hearts to these others, who they thought could be better to them than God was. How does this happen? How could it happen? And God tells us. This is God speaking, and through Jeremiah, this is verses 26 and 27. How long? How long will the hearts of the prophets ever turn back? Those who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart. They plan to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another, just as their ancestors forgot my name for Baal. So what had been happening? People, referred to here as the false prophets, were misusing their authority as prophets to lie. They were lying to the people, and they were pretending to have received prophetic dreams that were nothing more of the deceit of their own hearts. It was meant for their own gain. To make matters worse, they were intentionally trying to draw people away from God instead of further revealing God's will to them, which is the job of a prophet. But God had seen them at work, and he heard their lies, and he sent Jeremiah to be his true prophet and to deliver his word to his people. And listen to what God says through Jeremiah. Is not my word like fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces? It is God's word that will do the work here. It's just the prophets who get to deliver it. Charles Feinberg, in his commentary on Jeremiah, says it this way. God's message does not lull men in their sins. It crushes the heart to bring repentance. The true word convicts and converts. God's word is meant to crush our hearts of stone so that we can truly seek repentance because God's word is a living active thing that is meant to work upon us. 
This isn't just me saying this. This is Hebrews. This is Hebrews 4, verses 12 to 14, and it says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the hearts and thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all of creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Our psalm continued this theme this morning of God's knowledge to the harm being done to the people and the judgment that he's going to bring, but instead it uses this imagery of a courtroom, basically a heavenly courtroom, where God is presiding over this court and he is pronouncing judgment and death on false gods. Now you can interpret the gods to be several different things, but I think the one that makes most sense is to understand that the false gods here are rulers or people in power that failed to wield their authority justly and instead used their power to oppress. Their days are numbered and they will die for what they have done. We sang that in the psalm together. But what should they have been doing? We hear the judgment, but what did God want them to do? Verses three and four of the psalm tell us, give justice to the weak and the orphan. Maintain the right of the lowly and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. It's pretty straightforward. Eugene Peterson translates these verses in his message like this. You're here to defend the defenseless, to make sure that the underdogs get a fair break. Your job is to stand up for the powerless and prosecute all those who exploit them. This is what God desires for anyone in authority, and for us too, for that matter, to uphold. This is our job, both then and now. And now, as it was then, we still have countless abuses of power and authority with horrific consequences for the most vulnerable among us that perhaps is made even worse by the cultivated acceptance and indifference to these crimes. We get used to them. All you have to do is watch the news, read the paper, scroll through Twitter, log on to Facebook. It doesn't matter. You can see a world that is rife with sin and pain and brokenness. Always fingers pointing at someone else for how it got that way. The psalmist's words still ring true. How long? It would seem that human nature has not changed. Our propensity to sin and to wound one another still is the same from biblical times as it is now. And it's going to stay that way until God sets things right. Our passages remind us that God is a God who sees all, hears all, and is ever-present. The suffering and sorrow of this world are very, very much known to him because nothing and no one escapes his notice. And so we are confronted by Jesus' own words today in the gospel reading we heard from Luke. He said this, I came to bring fire to the earth 
and how I wish it were already kindled. And, do you think I came to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. What's startling about this and, and hearing these words from Jesus is that at first listen, it sounds remarkably unchristlike. Or maybe a better way of putting that is, it sounds remarkably unlike the more palatable images of Christ, like Jesus as the suffering servant, or the far more comfortable Jesus as the good shepherd. And we embrace those easily. And let's be honest, I love those images too. I want to cling to those images of Jesus too. But that's not his word for us today. Jesus is fired up in this passage, and he's fired up because he's a man on a mission. The man on the mission, if you will. God's rescue plan for the world is his to carry out, and he is impatient to get it done for our sake. He has seen the state of the world and the people around him, and he wants to get right on with setting things right. He knows that he can only do so much without first completing his work on the cross of being crucified and rising again. Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke says this, God's plan and the, upcoming, or, and the coming of the Spirit's judging work of fire cannot occur until Jesus undergoes rejection and bears God's judgment. You see, Jesus knows that the only way to fix this mess is to follow through with God's plan for our redemption and endure the horrors of his trial and the cross so that he can free us from the hell that we've made for ourselves. That is the baptism that he refers to today. His baptism is his death on the cross. And the division that he speaks of? Well, that's because of us. It all comes back to what we choose to believe about Jesus and how we choose to live. There simply is no neutral category because Jesus' offer contains the choice between aligning with the kingdom and standing against it. You have to take a side. You're either with Jesus or you're against his kingdom. <coughs> faith is a gift, but choosing to live by faith to live obediently to Jesus will come at a cost. Remember that God wants your all. We have to be willing to give up everything, everything, so that we can receive Jesus. And so doing so can just separate us from the things that we once held so close, from the things that we once loved more than everything. In preparing to teach on Teresa of Avila last fall, I came across a wonderful snippet of one of her conversations with God. Um, and she was wonderfully honest. She wrote down her journals and she wrote down her diary and it read like a conversation between her and God. So she was confronting God about the sufferings that she had to endure and her life was very difficult. And she reports that God responded to her by saying, this is how I deal with my friends. Now, most people would have stopped right then and there and pondered about what that could have meant and, oh, maybe I'm in the wrong here. But that wasn't Teresa. Her response was, well, in that case, you shouldn't be surprised that you don't have very many. I so get this. 
I so, so get this, and I so relate to what she was saying. I appreciate the honesty there and the fact that she wrote that out so that years later we can see that and follow that as an example. So the question is, what do we do when we come face to face with the suffering that this world has to offer? How are we supposed to live and deal with the false prophets and the false gods of our time? This is where the letter to Hebrews came, comes into play. We are called to live by faith in obedience to Jesus Christ. We are called to be an enduring people, a people who do not cower with fear when the storm starts to roll in. We are to call upon God to be our helper, our shield, our strength, and our deliverer, no matter what sort of mess we find ourselves in. And then we are to act accordingly. I'll get to this more in a minute, but first let me summarize the ending of Hebrews 11 for us, which is what we heard today. The author reminds us of all the incredible victories won through faith in God, starting with crossing the Red Sea, through the fall of Jericho and Rahab's salvation, through Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel. That's a sermon series right there, but suffice it to say, this is a mixed bag of godly and ungodly leadership that yet by faith in God is somehow counted as a victory. The author sketches out then more infamous stories of those who are not specifically named, but well known, such as Daniel in the lion's den and his friends in the fiery furnace, the women whose sons are raised from death by Elijah and Elisha, the probable martyrdoms of Jeremiah by stoning and Isaiah by being sawn in two, and the myriad of believers who have been beaten, mocked, or persecuted for their faith. These great cloud of witnesses are our spiritual ancestors in the faith. Their stories are unique and they're incredible, but no matter what their situation was, they all clung to their faith in God. They lived they loved, they acted, they suffered, they persevered, and they died. They have all finished their race. We are now called to do the same. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. I do not think it is an accident that we get this example of running a race to explain how to live a faithful life. Running is hard. It takes effort. Walking is easier. But to run, we have to push ourselves, exert more effort and energy to get to a run, and then it requires constant effort to keep up the pace until the end. It's effortless to stop, easy to slow down or to stray off the course. But we are called to run the race that is set before us and to live a holy and righteous life of obedience to God. Like running, this is going to require some serious effort and determination. Living as we are called to live for God will mean getting proactive and engaging with the hurting world around you 
And I'm not just talking about sharing our favorite article or pundit's newest hot take on Facebook. No, I really mean getting out there and doing some work living out our call as heirs to the kingdom of God. Now maybe for some of you that means donating or better yet volunteering at, at food pantries or homeless shelters in your area. Maybe that means getting involved in your school district and making sure that it's not just your kids who have what they need for back to school. Maybe it means protesting the rising racism and xenophobia in our countries, in our country, in our communities, in our schools, in our public discourse that has become normal and standing up for those people that it maligns. Maybe it's working to change unjust or biased workplace policies or cultures. Maybe it's working to change policies and laws so that our communities, our states, and our country better reflect grace and truth. Maybe that means sharing the gospel with actual words and risk outing yourselves to people to be some sort of Jesus freak. I don't know what you are called to do. There's no way for me to know personally what you are supposed to do, but I do know that we are all called to do something because there is no neutral ground, remember? There is no neutral ground. And if this is sounding a little too social justice warrior to you, remember that this was always intended to be the work of the church and that the governments only stepped in because the work was not getting done. It's radical, and it's supposed to be, because it's supposed to transform the world. It's a hallmark of the kingdom of God, and God simply calls it justice. This is how we are supposed to show God's love to one another, including our neighbors, the most vulnerable, the least of these, by seeking to live just lives, working to overturn oppression, and to show mercy to all those who need it. Be righteous agents of mercy and grace, fearless as you wade into the brokenness that surrounds us all. Because that broken mess is exactly where Jesus is. And that's where he wants us to be too until we all reach our finish line. And I pray that when we do, we have done our job and we get to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. Amen.